Welcome to Think Oral, where we connect the unconnected between oral and physical health. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Levine. And I'm your host, Maria Filipova. Let's get at it. I welcome to the next episode of the Think Oral Health podcast. I am joined, as usual, by Dr. Jonathan Levine. And we are both very excited to have a conversation with a disruptor, a change agent, an innovator, making dental care closer to that future integrated state that we, both Jonathan and I, are very much working towards. Jonathan, do you want to tell us the topic of today's discussion and our guest? We are super excited to have Chris Salerno from the dental service organization called TED. And I like to say they're disrupting the disruptors of the DSO space with a unique approach to the delivery of dental care by thinking differently. Chris is a dentist. I'd love him to give us a little bit of, of his journey in the dental field. Uh, he was brought on board by their CEO, Doug Hudson. He's driving the clinical expertise and the clinical delivery of this organization. So excited to Chris to have you with us and just great to open it up with this first question of how did you get to 10? Where did you start in this dental field? And where are the areas in dentistry that you said to yourself, things need to be improved, things need to be changed. There is such an opportunity for disruption. So I graduated from dental school in 2005, did a residency. I realized pretty early on that while I loved doing clinical dentistry, I really enjoyed educating and mentoring. And when you're fresh out of school, you don't get a lot of opportunities to do that. You're the mentee. You're the person that's got a lot of information to absorb. But I had great opportunities with the American Student Dental Association, American Dental Association, got very involved in organized dentistry. And I, I just got addicted. I loved being able to have an impact to, you know, storm Capitol Hill, to, to have a, an, a, an effect on individuals beyond just what you can treat in your own share. Started to get very involved as a lecturer, as a writer. I started my own blog back in 2009 called The Curious Dentist. Eventually led to me becoming chief editor of Dental Economics. I was really fortunate to be considered for that role when the great Joe Blaze retired. And I had a great life. I was enjoying myself. I had my own practice that I had started around 2010. Couple days in practice, couple days doing dental economics, traveling, lecturing, seeing the world. Loved all of that. Then the, I had the opportunity, met Doug Hudson, he said, Hey, we're trying to do DSOs differently. We've got a different business model, but different value proposition. We need a chief dental officer. We're about a year in. We need a chief dental officer. Would you consider? And uh, had to think about it long and hard of it, selling your practice, means giving up the and trans transitioning from being editor of dental economics and some other fun things I was doing, but I realized it was an incredible opportunity and, and took advantage of it. You know, the last question, part of your question, what am I excited about? What are the opportunities that this profession has? First and foremost, it was what I saw early on was an opportunity to become better business people. While I do work at a TSO now, I still think small private practice is alive and well. And I think there's plenty of opportunities for a small business owner, one or two person dental practice or whatever it may be to thrive. They just need a better business education. And they're certainly not getting it in dental school. So whether it's through dental economics or other forums, I love lecturing on practice management, teaching them how to 
exactly what 10 did. I was thinking along those lines even before I came along to 10. 10 doesn't try to be everything to everyone. It's got a specific target demographic or demographics in mind, and it creates a unique value proposition for them. So I still think there's a lot of work to be done for, for dentists to be educated on those kinds of principles. I mean, let's start with the basic question. Why is 10 so different? Yeah, so we say 10 is dental done differently. I think the greatest value proposition they offer, it, it's their value proposition. And, and the greatest value proposition they offer is such an intentional patient experience. Every dental practice on the planet, including my own practice uh, that I had started from scratch, everyone says we put patients first. We treat patients as celebrities. We, we take really great care of patients. Everyone says that. But we have a truly curated experience for our target demographic. So our target demographic are calling young urban professionals, busy business people. You can already sort of think about what someone in New York City who tends to be in their, say, 20s, 30s, and 40s, you can already start to get a sense of what this person wants from their dental experience. We make sure we deliver that. From when they first interact with our brand to booking an appointment to when they walk in, what that experience looks like, how it smells, how it feels. There's so many little pain points upon a traditional patient journey from I first heard about you until I paying for services rendered. So many little pain points, speed bumps, and we've considered each one of those and, and made our best efforts to remove them and inject moments of hospitality, what we call surprise and delight. When they say, oh, gosh, last time I went to a dentist's office, this was really frustrating. And now this is actually exciting. Setting our patients up to be in a really good mood and to celebrate their oral health, maybe for the first time in their lives, they really get awakened to the full potential of what their oral health can mean. That positions them to talk about comprehensive and preventative care, not just focus on urgent needs. I'm not in pain, so I don't need to go to the dentist, those kinds of things. So that's how Tend is Dental Done Differently. We're really intensive on our focus on being able to remove those traditional pain points, inject surprise and delight but doing it focused on our target demographic, not trying to be everything to everyone. My question is for both of you. Part of it is when we talk about the moments of surprise and delight, Chris, could we just take an, a very, uh, maybe even tactical and real approach, right? Because as a patient, yes, I would appreciate mint tea in the waiting room while I'm waiting to see my dentist, but that's the surface level hospitality, surprise and delight. How do you, in your experience, uh, transform care delivery to be more delightful, right? Because I could frankly forego the tea if my dentist is able to talk to me about less invasive approaches to managing early caries or more integrated view of how my oral health is a precursor to my overall systemic health. So unpack what those moments of surprise and delight look like at a care delivery and much more meaningful way, if you will. And surprise and delight in his JBL practice in Manhattan too. That's a great way to, to kind of think about it. Look, there's the, call it the window dressing. There's the fun hospitality moments that don't directly necessarily relate to diagnosing, treatment planning, and, and delivering care in a way that is innovative. But it, at least it, it, it's rolling up the red carpet and it's exciting someone. It's putting them in a good frame of mind, uh, putting them at ease, and you're welcoming more folks to your practice because you have those amenities. Let's call them the amenity areas. Innovating in terms of the actual clinical experience is just as important. I say to our clinical teams all the time, you know, our differentiation, our value proposition doesn't end with being able to watch 
no reservations with Bourdain on the ceiling. That's not where we stop innovating. It is so important for the hygienist, for the dentist to be able to, and the dental assistants too, for that full clinical team to be able to continue those expectations we've set for differentiation and for, for consideration. Obviously, cutting edge technology, and you know, I'm sure Jonathan has incorporated so much of this in his practice as well. There's technology that it's just table stakes at this point. Jonathan, I remember a time practicing when, you know, you didn't need to have digital radiographs. You do now, right? I mean, a practice that doesn't have digital radiography is far behind. What are those next elements of technology that are, say, in the next five to 10 years going to radically change how we diagnose and treatment plan care? And, and certainly that's in other digital workflows. Intraoral scans, combining with cone beams for the appropriate cases, integrating all of that data to more efficiently treatment plan, and then communicate the value of that care. So I think what we'll see, this is my prediction, Jonathan, I'm curious what you think on this. I think we'll see in the next five to 10 years that an intraoral scanner will move away from just being a way to not do goopy impressions, but will actually be a, it will largely replace a mirror and explore. That it is going to be the way to capture a dental record to educate patients on the size, shape, position of their teeth, presence of decay, gum disease, all of those things, and be able to track that over time. This will be a new patient visit experience. And there's already dentists that are starting to do that. So we're paying attention to technology and how we can start to incorporate those elements. It allows us to have more conversations about comprehensive and preventative care. So we don't want to just talk about, hey, there's a hole in your tooth you can see on this x-ray. So do you want to fix that hole in your tooth? That'd be great. That's the exciting. It's necessary, but it's not exciting. What is exciting is to be able to say to this patient population who's been delighted and surprised by our amenities to say, hey, has anyone ever talked to you about this little bit of wear in your teeth? You know, it's just, we're catching this early, but here's what can happen over time. We begin that comprehensive preventative care conversation. Those conversations are made even easier as we, we adopt other technology too. But you need a clinical team that's aligned with talking about comprehensive preventive care. Not taught in dental school. Not every dentist is comfortable saying, well, they didn't mention they're concerned about this and how do I bring it up and feel comfortable about that. It takes a lot of alignment to do. Chris just unpacked a lot right now. He unpacked the concept that the hygiene room is the center of innovation of a dental practice. He just unpacked that our new technology in dentistry, it needs to be utilized. As we know, it takes about 17 years to adopt new technology in healthcare. Dentistry probably takes a little bit longer. By being an organized approach, Chris, with leadership like yourself as a chief dental officer of 10, a CEO like Doug Hudson and, and this amazing team that Doug has put together. We know there's this opportunity to elevate the profession by incorporating new technologies. But more importantly, I think where you were going was on the people side of the equation and the opportunity to develop clinical teams that are inspired and motivated because of the culture that you are building at 10. Can you talk a little bit about what are the elements of building culture so that the people side of the equation, which delivers this high level of clinical care, is successful, consistent, and constantly improving? Culture is incredibly important to us from a recruitment and retention standpoint. I won't take myself down the sidebar, but I've written a lot on LinkedIn about the hygiene and dental assisting shortage that our profession is seeing. 
And short answer is here. A lot of people are just throwing dollars at the problem. And unfortunately, in those situations, you're recruiting mercenaries and not missionaries necessarily. We want to bring people in that are excited by what we're trying to do, that are excited to join a, a practice that is, is going to educate them well, give them career pathing and enjoy a culture. We, we've all worked in places that were really fun environments. Everyone's thriving, pushing you to, to be your best version of yourself, both in terms of performance and in terms of interpersonal relations. And we've been in situations, work environments were, were less. And so we want to attract people that are just so excited to join our, our culture. It's a culture of excellence. I think you have to be very aligned on mission, vision, and values, Jonathan. I think there are plenty of examples of companies that have really nice sounding mission, vision, and values, but they don't live and breathe them. They're just words that sit on a page somewhere, you know, in the corporate documents collecting dust. You know, we actually scroll our mission, vision, values on, as you know, we have uh, screens in the back in the lounges uh, for our team. And we scroll lots of fun updates and celebrations, great promoters. We use NPS to, to gauge our, gauge our, our, the experiences that we're delivering members. We share and celebrate those that are delivering care above and beyond, sharing best practice for people to learn from, but also reminding them of why we're here, why we're gathered here and what's different about what we're trying to offer. I would say, it, Jonathan, it's, it's making sure the mission, vision, values are living and breathing, that you have, that you make reference to them, that you have award ceremonies named after your values, right? That you're able to, when giving coaching and, and performance reviews, that you reference those mission, vision, and values. It's so that we're getting on the same page with what we want this culture to be. While still allowing for individual expression, we're sharing with them how we want this to be. Part of that, too, then, also needs to be the clinical mission, vision, values, if, if, if you will. Not that they're different from the organization's mission, vision, values, but it's spelling out some of those uniting principles into clinical decision-making and, and making sure that we're following the standards of care, but we're, we're calibrated on what we're trying to do. You know, teeth are teeth, but so many, there are so many different approaches to, to treatment plans. And so we just want to make sure that we're in the same ballpark when we're presenting care, whether you're a dentist, hygienist, or even a dental assistant. Chris, listening to you and thinking about just really terrific companies out there, we think about the common thread between success and culture building and amazing growth of an organization and creating a culture that people feel trusted and inspired. Is it any different in the delivery of care in a service business like dentistry? as it relates to other industries that are service industries, whether it's hospitality, whether it's a company like a Starbucks, the companies that have been incredibly successful in building this positive momentum of growth and positive culture. But is, it, is there a difference or is there outside industry standards that we can apply to healthcare? I'm really glad you, you brought that up. I will, in my lectures, very often reference best practices from other hospitality industries, restaurants in particular, just because it's fun. Everyone enjoys going to a nice restaurant, but how you unite the team, how you hire, onboard, and then continue to mentor and coach. I think there are so many lessons we can learn from other industries. I don't think it's all that different. In terms of how you get a group of people together, unite them on a mission, and coach and develop them. Th those are universal truths, in my opinion. I there's different approaches, but those, these are universal truths, whichever path and approach you, you choose. 
one of my favorites is Danny Meyer. Uh, Danny Meyer is a great restaurateur, Jonathan. You, you, you no doubt are familiar with him. For, for anyone else listening, he's famous now for Shake Shack. But before Shake Shack, he owns very high-end, very well-respected restaurants in New York City, uh, Gramercy Tavern, Blue Smoke. And he wrote a, a book that a mentor shared with me years ago called Setting the Table. That was one of my early, I read this in 2006 or so, I was just out of dental school. That was one of those books that was an aha moment as he talks about how to recruit an amazing team and deliver consistent experiences for customers. I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is the answer. This is, there's so many lessons I can learn and I've started implementing in my practice immediately. No, I don't think it's all that different. Yeah, there's uniqueness to different markets, healthcare versus non-healthcare, different sectors, sure. But people are people. Leadership is leadership. No, I couldn't agree with you more. Let's flip it a little bit, Maria. Let's talk about the pain point that you're solving for the young dentist coming out of dental school. The opportunity that DSO, and let's just call you guys the disruptor or a reinvented DSO, the opportunity that we have for these young dentists coming out, you know, with so much debt, what do the DSOs represent when it's done right? Let's mm. talk about that. DSOs are who's hiring right now. I mean, to be candid, as I go around the country, even around the world, but we'll just focus on the U.S. now. You know, I'll talk to dentists who own practices, their mid-career, later career, and they say, gosh, you know, a lot of young grads are joining DSOs. And they say, yeah, are you hiring? And they kind of go, well, no. Where, where are they supposed to go? DSOs are able to be very competitive and disruptive compared to the traditional model in terms of wages, benefits, and so, especially some of the bigger groups have incredible training programs. I mean, really well-organized continuing education and learning programs such that there are de- they can even take a dentist who didn't even do a residency and in, in short order, turn them into a, a certainly a very competent dentist if they hadn't been uh, previously. So that's a tremendous value that DSOs are, are providing. Look, the concerns I would have with the DSO are the same concerns I would have with small private practice. Are you treating patients ethically? And are you treating the providers ethically? Are you crossing and disrespecting doctor-patient relationship, clinical autonomy? So whether you're DSO or, or, or small private practice, I've seen, unfortunately, we've all seen instances where, where that autonomy is not respected, where our incentives and operations systems in place that would be not respecting the standards of care as, as set forth by our professions. What I think is the greatest opportunity for dentists who are just graduating, it's less student debt. Student debt is a big one, and it's certainly a factor in where they go to practice. Marco Vujicic, chief economist of the ADA, has shown that for every $10,000 increase in student debt, and student debt for dentists is made up of many tens of thousands of dollars, but for every $10,000 increase in student debt, a dentist is about a percent more likely to join a DSO. That is definitely weighing on dentist minds. Oh, I got to make a lot of money so I can pay off this debt. Well, you're going to have this debt for a very long time. Let's be clear. You're not going to join a DSO, work for five years and pay off your student loan debt. That doesn't happen. What I think the greatest opportunity for dental students that are graduating is a business education, is to start to understand the type of practice that's the right fit for them long-term. Again, teeth are teeth, but the people connected to those teeth, what they value, the value we create for them is so different from practice, different business models. So I think a DSO is able to pretty quickly teach dentists Good operations, leadership, org structure, 
those things can be lacking in traditional private practice. I've worked in those practices. It's just, it can feel like a circus in some small private practice, in some DSOs too, to be sure. And there's not clear org structure, accountability, performance reviews. And so a well-run DSO, I think, can start to inspire dentists and hip dentists to those things so that when they go into their own private practice, if that's their journey, if they're going to buy or start a practice on their own, as many of them do, they've gotten a nice inside peek on how, how things should run. Thanks for unpacking. When Maria, DSO industry, as far as growth standpoint, you can go by acquisition or you can go by this de novo growth. I think it'd be interesting uh, for Chris to tell us a little bit of why 10 took the de novo growth one clinic at a time approach versus the acquiring more of these established practices. I did a startup practice myself years ago. And I remember talking to friends who also had did de novos or did acquisition and the grass always seemed green on the other side. For de novos, you say, gosh, you got, you look at someone who did an acquisition. So you started with a team and with operations, good or bad, they were some operation. And you started with patience and, and a flow. It's a big deal to start, uh, especially for DSOs to start solely by de novo. And that's rare. The decision for TEND is we're creating such a curated experience and brand for our patients that to grow by acquisition and try to retrofit all of that into an existing practice would be really difficult in terms of the actual infrastructure, the physical infrastructure of the place, the technology. Yeah, you're buying an existing body of patients, but you're also buying an existing body of patients who have certain expectations for how their care was delivered previously. And that may or may not be a good fit for what TEND is looking to do. We don't see kids. That's one of the things where we try to be everything to everyone. You know, under the age of 12, where we know we can't provide that level of experience. And so if we're going to buy essentially a book of business by acquiring a practice and they see children, that that's pretty disruptive on, in a negative way to those families. So I think it makes great sense if we have a busy business person, a patient, we call them members. We have a busy business person member that they live in Williamsburg and they work in Wall Street and they go to DC frequently for business. We can see them in any one of those locations. In fact, we, in many cases we do. When they go into each one of those practices, the look and the feel is virtually the same. It's so consistent between our practices and that's important to us. Chris, this is thank you for sharing and being a little bit open about the strategy. And as I say, strategy is defined not by what you choose to do, but what you choose not to do. These are the hardest choices. And that's when you know you truly have a strategy that you are adhering to. And so you obviously made a very intentional choice about what kind of patients that you could serve best. And we could provide, you could provide the experience that you really want to to hold as a standard. I spend a lot of my time thinking about changing the industry and connecting the dots between dental and medical care teams, especially given that, you know, out of the $165, $170 billion that we spend in uh, dental services in the U.S., it's 4% of our total spending. And yet, when we look at venture funding in early stage companies for oral health innovation, it's less than 1% of total VC funding in healthcare. And so we have a very drastic disconnect and underfunding of, if you say, innovation, especially if we measure it by, you know, VC funding, entrepreneurs, and early stage companies. I spend a lot of time thinking about how can we 
accelerate innovation and adoption of innovative solutions in dentistry. We talked about culture. Dentistry is not known for innovative or receptive to change industry. I thought healthcare was slow to adopt technology. And then I came to dentistry. I was like, okay, there is a different pace now. I am curious about, given your strategy, given the freedom that you have earned by growing de novo, right? Do you find yourself um, easier in the construct of, of the organization you've built to innovate, try new things that you consider best practice that may not be the quote-unquote standard for mainstream dentistry right now? Yes, I think so. So we have startup energy. We're not a startup anymore. We're an early-stage high-growth company. We're nearly four years in. But because we have... We've built a, a, call it a, a work culture around trying new things, failing fast. That has led us to where we are currently, but it also drives us into the future on, on questioning everything. I love, as I'm the only dentist or, or clinician in the room, but I love being able to talk to my colleagues at TEND and they're asking wonderful questions. Hey, why is this done this way traditionally in dentistry? And every now and then I'm like, you know, I don't, there's not really a good answer for that one. This is another thing that we should be challenging. Sometimes, quite often today, it is also a, a technology limitation. Why can't this hardware talk to this software? Yeah. And there's a very frustrating answer for why that might be. Fortunately, we've invested heavily in, the, in our tech department. Mark Crockett is our chief technology officer. He's brilliant. We're able to invest ourselves, something that many small private practices can't do, but we're able to invest in workarounds and we're able to make that more seamless connection between hardware and software. I think that's what's really holding our profession back right now. We have amazing technologies, diagnostic, restorative practice management software, data, We've got all the great bits. They just don't talk to each other really well. And because every one of our practices is from scratch, we're getting all of the same technology together. We're using the iTeros for our scanners and we're, you know, using Plamicacombe. We're, we're assembling all of our, our great tech together. We're also making sure it, it communicates together very well and building the bridges between there, them if they don't currently exist. But because we're able to do that, I think we're able to more quickly innovate and try new things. That is a limitation that I certainly had when I was in private practice. And I make an investment in a new x-ray tube hardware, and I realize it doesn't communicate perfectly with my x-ray viewing imaging software. Or it does, but it takes like five extra clicks. I mean, that's one of those mind-numbing things that we have to deal with in, in healthcare, especially in small private practice. It's wonderful that because we're adopting the same technology as de novos, we're bringing the same technology every studio, we're very focused on how we're able to connect the dots between these things and, and drive innovation. It's not easy, right? And it does come back to part of it is culture, a part of it is mindset, and there's no real urgency to change. Incentive structures, right? If you are um, running a profitable business, serving fee-for-service customers and doing the procedures that you are talking about, um, why change? And so there's so many myths around innovation or frankly change or doing things differently that are frankly mess. It's expensive. It takes time. It's difficult. It's, but at the end of the day, it becomes to the culture of, you know, staying in your comfort zone. I think, Jonathan, I think a lot of our colleagues are very comfortable. They say, hey, why change what I'm doing? It works. 
it's it, Marie, you touched on it. I, I feel it deeply. It's all about the leadership mindset because you're setting a tone. If you believe in servant leadership, which is to make everyone around you the best they can be, if you believe in a trust and inspire culture, and if you set a big vision, bigger than anybody else, which is really what Chris is talking about, challenging the status quo and breaking out of the old norms because it's been a fragmented industry forever. The opportunity is amazing because the value proposition, as Chris is talking about, the tent is going after and they're doing. The value proposition is to do things so differently than anybody else is doing it, but using the new technologies to bring it, whether it's the hospitality approach to the patient, whether it's the digital workflow that exists now in dentistry, the adoption in the overall industry is so slow. So you know what? You get on your motorcycle, you break out of this normal status quo, you have a tremendous people on the top, you know, with leadership and it's top down and bottom up and the magic's going to happen. That's exactly what's happening in an organization like 10. I think we have a lot of laggards because mixture of reasons. Hey, I spent 20 grand on whatever new toy years ago and it just collects dust. And that could be because they made the wrong investment. It didn't make sense for their practice. It was just a shiny new toy. It didn't make sense for their patient population. It could be because they don't understand change management, operational excellence. Just because you buy the thing doesn't mean you're, you've invested in the, the maintenance, the, the training for your team. So they got burned before and they don't want to get burned again. Because as we've identified, well, what I'm working, what I'm using right now works. So why disrupt? I think it's also because we have individuals who don't understand the financial aspect of return on investment. Gosh, even if they're a little excited uh, and about making an investment, they don't understand break-even analysis, the actual ROI calculation. How do I make sure that this is a sensible investment? And then if I do see that, I can now understand how I'm going to save money here or bring in a new uh, service lane to my business or all of those different reasons why you would make the investment. I think a lot of our colleagues just do it because they're like, eh, that seems cool. And then, yeah, no surprise, they, they get burned. Yeah. Bunch. I think you're defining the competitive advantage of having yes. an organized approach to dentistry. You, you know, we don't know what we don't know as an individual clinician. And if you're not into personal growth, which ends up trickling down to your team of the practice, I know myself, I, you know, I have a 26 people I have teams, captains of teams, and I, I have been an overnight success in 35 years. Right. You, know, you know where I'm going. It takes a lot of time, but here's 10 bringing in outside industry people plus inside industry people like Chris. And I think it's a very interesting business model and an approach for the future as the DSOs do have a clear competitive advantage when it's done right. Maria, this has been a, a pretty interesting conversation. It's one for all the stakeholders in dentistry, you know, whether you are a CEO of a, an amazing distribution company, whether you're an individual dentist, there's a lot to glean from Chris's conversation with us about creating a differentiated product and service of motivating and inspiring your team and to keep our minds open as individual of practitioners of what the opportunity is going into the future. Absolutely. It is kind of a question of uh, where does innovation come from? The early adopters, if you will, maybe organized industry does have the infrastructure, the 
horizon, the longer term horizon and the capabilities to, you know, understand what's real innovation that could advance and be disseminated across the organization versus the, you know, mom and pop shops who can really afford the investment in the change management that's required after you've invested in the tech. But it's also innovation is not only technology, right? Innovation is thinking about the patient in a different way and delivering care in a different way. And that's where I think there's a huge opportunity. And Chris, you were part of one of the leading publications as the chief editor for Dental Economics. I think that's a great platform. What is the role for thought leadership and influencers to shape the minds of the future generations of dentists? Because we, it's a small set of pioneers like yourself, like Jonathan, who are leading the way, but we have to kind of keep, keep expanding that influencer group of early adopters or fast followers, if you will. So maybe what, uh, Chris, let's try and end on a hopeful note. What are some of those areas that you see some bright spots and opportunities to influence and show the value of kind of doing things differently so we could bring along some of the fast followers, if you will? I get continually inspired when I work with younger dentists, either dentists that are employed at TEND, or I, I still do a lot of work with new dentists, recent grads. I'll, I'll lecture with them. I'll, I'll go back and speak to the American Student Dental Association uh, on occasions. And I am blown away by their enthusiasm, their optimism. Contrast that with some of my colleagues that Jonathan and I were referencing. I mean, there's dentists who've been in this a long time, and unfortunately, they've lost that passion or they feel stuck or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. I don't see that at all with the, the younger generation. They are aware of their student debt. They're aware of different business models, including DSOs. They're aware of all this stuff. And they say, I am so excited to, to be a healthcare provider. I'm so excited to be able to focus my discipline on oral health. They're open-minded. They are, they are thoughtful. They just need that great mentorship as we all do. And mm-hmm. what's exciting is to see that they're able to get that mentorship in so many other places. It doesn't just have to be within their own practice, although that can be the most effective mentorship. They can go online on YouTube, on Instagram or whatever and get at least mentorship bites and great advice from thought leaders from around, around the profession, around the world even. I am so excited for the future of our profession of dentistry and oral health because of the ridiculously talented and smart people that are being drawn to this profession. And um, they just have more opportunities to be mentored, even virtually, thanks to social media. On that hopeful note, I invite our listeners to follow you on LinkedIn, on all the platforms that you're putting some of your thought leadership and learned lessons from the past. And we will continue that conversation. That's one of the reasons why Jonathan and I started that podcast, so we could have a platform to reach others and frankly showcase the change agents like yourself and your team who are making it happen. Um, so it's not just a nice platitude on a blog post somewhere, but actually doing the work of making it happen. So thank you for joining us. We're very excited to follow your success uh, going forward and we will hopefully see you soon. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Maria. It was great. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Maria. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much. That was yeah. super conversation. Fantastic. Uh, sorry for Chris, my it was fun. issues. It was fun. Would, yeah, it was great. Hopefully we'll catch up soon, Chris. Thank you. Look forward to it. Cheers. Thanks. Chris, give my best to the team over there. Thanks. I will do that. I will do that. We catch up soon. Take good care. Thanks for everything. Thanks Thanks. for your time. You got it. Bye-bye.
Thanks for listening to the Think Oral Podcast. For the show notes and resources from today's podcast, visit us at www.outcomesrocket.health slash thinkoral. Or start a conversation with us on social media. Until then, keep smiling. And connecting care.